Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is the great Prashant Thayer. And the Red Wings uh, lost a couple more times over the weekend. A pair of 3-2 losses to the Florida Panthers, one in overtime, one in regulation. Uh, Losing streak is now at six games. It's 2019-20 all over again. But there was kind of a minimal sense of panic from what I noticed coming out of those post-game press conferences yesterday. And it really stood out to me because... Not necessarily because I agree or disagree with that, but it just made me wonder, you know, should there be? Should there be a sense of panic six games in here? I, I understand that they were relatively, you know, they're one goal games compared to what had what the previous week had brought. But that's kind of what I want to spend most of the show talking about today. We'll get into the games, but but let's start there. Like six six game losing streak here after this weekend. Should there be more panic about the Red Wings? I think that, you know, that was the tough question for me when you kind of sit back and look at this, because when you looked at last season, I mean, it was so debilitating. I mean, the Wings just had so many lengthy losing streaks. They And not only were they losing, they were losing by a lot of games. Um, I think they had multiple eight-game losing streaks, if I'm remembering correctly. I think they had three separate eight-game losing streaks another, and another one that hit seven. So, you know, that... This isn't anything new, but I think the key for me, Max, is is the games were competitive. I think if you look at that first Florida game, the one on Saturday, Wings were the better team at five on five. The Wings should have won that game, uh, you know, going away. In fact, I thought they were uh, much, much better than than Florida. In fact, they had a two to one lead early on. And uh, if not for uh, Keith Yandel scoring a half second later, uh, they're probably walking in with a, a 2-1 lead and a potential to put the game away. Um, and we may be even thinking about this entirely different if Matthias Brome finishes off that Forsberg move with three minutes to go or so uh, in the third period. You know, if he finishes that off, now there's a lot of excitement and energy around that team. Uh, but I think for, you know, for two reasons, I'm not super worried. I think, number one, games were really close. Detroit was the better team over the series. Uh, you know, yes, you come away with only one out of four points. But you outplayed Florida, um, a team that is currently without a regulation loss. So I think that's very encouraging. And then the second thing is, I think the leadership structure in that locker room is different uh, from last year. I think Bobby Ryan being there is a big help. I think a lot of people have talked about that already. I think having the C on Dylan Larkin's chest uh, makes it a little bit more easy for him to lead vocally in addition to on the ice. Um, And I think those two things for me are big reasons why you know, I wouldn't be super worried if you're a member of the Red Wings organization, a player on the team, or a fan of the, uh, or just a fan kind of watching at home. This is one of the reasons why, before the season started, you and I devoted an entire episode to what does success look like for this team? Because you kind of knew they were going to lose uh, significantly more often than they were going to win. And we needed to kind of draw a line in the sand somewhere and say, okay, so what are we going to classify and kind of let him off the hook for? And, and what are we going to say? It's still just not good enough. I actually think this splits the difference on that. Like I may be a little less uh, forgiving on this as you for this reason, which is that while they did check kind of half of our box on that, which is keep these games close and execute, you know, dominate at least some phase of the game, which, you know, I don't know, dominate or, but, you know, win some phase of the game. Five on five, you know, they've been okay at five on five, at least, especially defensively. But over this series, I thought they were okay at five on five overall. My issues are number one, 
Um, they, they're letting these losing streaks run too long. And certainly they're not, you know, trying to let this happen. But this was one of the things we, we noted that they have to kick. You can't go on these long skids because of what it can do for morale. Now, if we're also saying they're not panicking, you could maybe argue that it hasn't gotten to the morale yet. Um, and I, I, I have time for that argument, but I, I also see them going into a two-game series against the best team in the league this week and wonder, okay, they're not panicking now. What's going to happen if, if Tampa puts the kind of performance Tampa is capable of putting on somebody on them? And so I'm a little up in the air on it. And, and the, the other side of it is I think the special teams have been uh, worse than than I think we would have set the bar at even at the start of the year. The, the penalty kill, which... Um, you know, it's always an uphill battle. You're you're quite literally shorthanded while you're doing it. Has dropped down into the the lower echelons in the league. The power play never really escaped the lower echelons of the league. And, and we're going to spend a lot of time on the show talking about special teams. So I won't belabor that point too much here. We'll get to it in probably ten fifteen minutes. But um, that's why I'm maybe a little less forgiving of this. But at this, while saying that. I do think it's maybe a good sign for them that that it hasn't really shaken them to that degree. I, I, I actually think it's probably better that they think that there's nothing to panic about and maybe let everyone else and us and the fans and whatever say that this is a problem more than maybe internalizing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And I think it's certainly fair to be extraordinarily harsh on them for uh, for the special teams aspect of it, because that is you know, something that I think you could argue from last season when they were 31st in goals for per 60, 31st in expected goals for per 60, and 31st in shots per 60 on the power play. That should have been a priority to fix. And so you can certainly say, well, here we are in, in you know, almost 10 games in now, and you are still uh, sitting at 11.8%, I think, on the season, you know, 26th in the league right now. Uh, and you still haven't made any real strides forward. I think for me, I will always kind of prioritize the emphasis of a five-on-five play, given that, you know, at least two-thirds of the game, if not more, is played at five-on-five. And truth be told, Detroit was awful at five-on-five last year. And if you look at their numbers right now, they're still not great. I mean, they're still 29th in the league in five-on-five expected goals for percentage, but it's almost the nature of how they've arrived there. It's either they're getting dominated at five-on-five or they're doing well at five on five. There is not this consistent drudging of a 57-43 split. Um, you have the Dallas, the second Dallas game where, you know, Detroit's expected goals for percentage is 27%. Yeah. Uh, and then they come back the next game and they're at 64% against Florida. And so it's they're getting games where they are uh, you know, controlling play at five on five. It's just now at this point, it's finishing talent and special teams. I can fault them for the special teams, but I can't necessarily fault them on the finishing talent piece of things. All right. Well, we're going to get way more into depth on that in a minute. But since you brought up the 64% expected goals for a percentage game against Florida, let's just start there. That was a Saturday night game. And you're, you're exactly right. It was 64% of the expected goals they generated. All of all of their all of the actual goals in this game until overtime were scored in the first period. Uh, Mantha and Bertuzzi scoring early for Detroit, and like you mentioned, uh, Keith Yandel with kind of a buzzer beater on the power play. Florida until the third period of this series did not score a five on five goal on the Red Wings, and and I think this feeds into your point there. But on that Saturday night game in particular, this was kind of the pinnacle of the special teams. Uh, catastrophe, I guess you could call it, you know, Anthony Manta and Dylan Larkin getting benched from the power play units early in the game. The first two power plays, their two best players, period, are not on the ice for any, not one, like, I think it was like four seconds at the end of the first one, yeah, which is basically a line change uh, at that point. And Jeff Blaschel's point about it, uh, you know, he, he kind of harkened back to the... Um, the quote-unquote definition of insanity, which is not actually the definition of insanity that people always cite about doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result, is not the definition of insanity, but that's made its way into the culture, and that's kind of what he referenced. So I guess from from that standpoint, he, he said, uh, you got to try something new. I don't disagree with that part. I just, start, I just wouldn't have started with the two best players in the locker room as the new thing to try. Yeah, I mean, it's been a consistent part of his coaching strategy. You know, if you think about him and and uh, over the years, kind of what the critique has been of Jeff Blaschel, and it's that he tends to hold his younger star players to a higher standard than other players. And 
you know, over the years, people have been really frustrated with him because, you know, he'll bench a guy for a couple of shifts because of uh, this mistake. Uh, whereas you'll see maybe a veteran make that mistake and it means nothing to, you know, Blashill. He's still going to continue playing that guy. And there was a, there's always been frustration in that respect. And I think it's a little bit of the same here. And, you know, fine. I'll, we're the power play is looking terrible, but these two guys are in his mind, the two guys that can do something about it and can be better and have the capacity to be better. So that's how I'm going to send that message is by sending it to those two guys, as opposed to, you know, a 35 year old Valtteri Filippola, where you're not really sending a message to Valtteri Filippola and there's not a lot of reserve for him to draw back into at this point in his career, but you send it to Dylan Larkin, you send it to Anthony Mantha, um, and you get something different potentially. Now, that is what I think his theory is. Whether or not that makes any sense to me, it doesn't, uh, because uh, I went on a very long-winded tangent on Twitter after drinking far too much coffee uh, on Sunday morning and basically laid into the scheme of the Red Wings power play where, to me, it's it's partly, yes, you do need talent, but if you take all the teams and you since we have kind of five on five uh, stats available, you know, back to 2007, 2008, you take all their teams and you compare their expected goals for it five on five and you compare it to what they do at, on the power play. The correlation really isn't there. You know, it's it, it's about a you're explaining about 25 percent of the differences you see um, in power play scoring by simply looking at even strength scoring. So to me. That kind of signals that just because you're a good five-on-five five team and likely if you're a good five-on-five five team, you're a good, skilled team, that doesn't mean you're going to be good on the power play. And so at that point, I think it does come down to scheme and there are certain tweaks and things that you can look at. I mean, just go pull uh, tape from 2014, 2015 when the Wings were the best power play in the league and you'll see there are a lot of different things those guys were doing that are not related to being elite talent. It's not related to players making plays. It's related to understanding your situations, understanding scenarios and, and moving around. So I think there was a lot more that could have been done besides that. And in fact, I do think there was a lot done because the second game looks looked a lot better. It, and it was guys in different positions. And so, you know, I think it was a little bit of coach speak, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's fair. And I, I think it's a, you know, he, he he said it wasn't to send a message, but I kind of think it was to send a message about like nobody is entitled to the power play. The power play is earned kind of thing. And like, you know, it, yeah, I think you're right. It's almost like the, you know, holding them to a higher standard because they're the ones who maybe have it within their power to do better. And also to they've got longer careers ahead of them, basically. Like it's I, I think Jeff Blaschel does feel a responsibility here to. Uh, get these guys in positions, and I, I don't disagree with this. To, to put these guys in positions that, as they develop, they they don't have these bad habits that have to get worked out or are too late to work out when they are twenty eight or twenty nine years old. I I don't mind that line of thinking, um, but at the same time, I don't know. It, it's uh, it's it seemed like a win at all costs approach to most other facets of the game, and as we've talked about the stylistic elements that they've chosen to employ in terms of, you know, playing kind of a muck up the neutral zone and, and slow everything down to, uh, to limit goals against we've rationalized this, that on this show by saying they're trying to win hockey games. And so I have a hard time kind of squaring that with benching the two best players from the power play under the guise of, yeah, but it's setting them up. I mean, if that's the case, like, I don't know, maybe, Maybe there needs to be more Taro Hirose in, in the lineup. I mean, there is right now, and so I that's whatever. But uh, do, you, do you know what I mean? Like, is there a little bit of dissonance to that? Yeah, I think what it comes down to is, I think from Blasio's coaching perspective and maybe his coaching style, in his opinion, the most effective way to send a message or communicate the need for change yeah. or better play is by taking away minutes. Um, I, think I think most coaches do that. I think most right, coaches right. think that. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, that's absolutely not limited to him. I think a lot of people will tell you, you know, uh, unless you're Mike Keenan, uh, your your method of sending a message to players is to bench them. 
Mike Keenan will tell you to stay on the ice until you can't actually come off the ice. Uh, you know, for those that remember that shift back in the 90s. Vigneault but, benched Konechny the same weekend. Right. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, you know, Konechny was the leading scorer in the league and, and you you benched him. And so it it it's a common refrain for coaches, my personal opinion, with zero NHL coaching experience and very little playing experience is that I don't think that's the most effective way to communicate with people. Um, but a, you would you trust the coach to know his players the best. You trust to know what's going to get them to respond. I think you could almost tell from Dylan Larkin's answers in the press conference that he almost it almost sounded like he was taking. Oh, it was a message received. It was a message right? received. It, it was a message received for him, and they looked extraordinarily better in the second game. So then you have to sit back and reconcile. Well, was it Blasio? Was it him benching those two guys that got that power play looking better? Uh, or was, was some sort of coaching or video review done with those guys afterwards? And that's what the difference was. Um, at the end of the day, though, you're kind of stuck with the fact that that coach probably knows his players the best. He knows how they're going to respond the best. And that's the decision he made. Whether or not everyone agrees with it, um, I think that's kind of where I'm at. I buy that. I think I, I buy that. I, uh, you know, watching it from above, my reaction was definitely what on earth is going on. But I think now that now that you can look with hindsight, I, there's a very there is something to your point. I mean, they, they looked markedly better the next night. Larkin's comment was that there was less thinking. And he also brought up that their entries were better. But the less thinking stood out to me. And I wanted to run this by you because I don't know if this is like a am I like being kind of a, a caveman here about this because your thread was a lot about structure and it's a wonderful thread. I highly encourage everyone to go read it. A lot of very good stuff in there um, that I think is right. But while we're on the topic of like scheme, if, if they're not thinking, how do those two things balance out? Because one of my wonders in the last, you know, everyone's joke has been, can the Red Wings decline the power play? Right. And while they're obviously not going to do that, I do wonder if there's something to like, can they just like pretend like they're not in the power play and act like there's like a guy on the ice who's like dropped his stick in the neutral zone and going to fish it out and just play like they would if they were they didn't know they were on the power play and they just happened to have a little more space because there was one less defender on the ice and run something more or more recognizable to their usual offense than this like little umbrella thing that all teams have to do and know they have to do like is there anything to that or am i just being kind of thick skull there. I mean, I I don't know that you want to openly advocate for having the Red Wings five on five offense out there, <laughs> given that it's the second worst five on five offense withdrawn has ever been. Um, so, you know, you, you can decline the power play all you want. All it means is zero goals for anybody. Um, and the Red Wings offense, I mean, really we're talking about a five on five offense. We'll get to this later. That's, that's second only to the worst Buffalo team uh, to play in this past decade in terms of expected goals for. So I don't mean like I don't they're fortunate though that. in that sense. I just mean like, you know, like, like, it, like I feel like when you, when you're on the power play, we all have a vision of what that looks like. It's, it's a, it's a pass up to the point and the point sets up a one timer and the guy in the front redirects it, you know, bingo, bango, that's a goal, whatever. That, that's the whole idea. But when you're playing at, um, you know, even with like, for example, with the empty net, like the Red Wings with an empty net look a lot better than they look on the power play. And it's because they're not so worried about that perfect five man structure. They're just kind of finding little spots they can put the puck and get it to the net. Maybe that's a better analog for what I'm getting at. I don't even know it's that they're worried about the structure so much that I think they get bogged down in these one trick pony type situations mm. where if Philip Ronick is on the ice, he needs to shoot the puck. And I think when you watch Philip Peronik on the power play, even the way he moves away from the puck, he's trying to constantly move such that he is in a shooting position. And, and Mickey Redmond pointed this out on the broadcast for those watching it on Saturday, that that's too easy. The goaltender knows that that's the play. It's the same thing also with the Anthony Mantha one-timer when Mantha's on the ice. They know that the Red Wings want to funnel that. And then similarly, I think what happens is you have guys that just know what they're good at and when you watch the Red Wings power play in the early part of the season, it seemed like, okay, either Mantha or Philip Peronic shoots the puck from the point, and then we're going to put two guys in front of the net to scramble for the loose puck. That, that was the Red Wings power play. Yeah. And so what that means is it's a lot easier to defend because those guys in the, in the wedge or if they're in a diamond or in a box, whatever structure they're in, very little rotation of players 
very little decisions that need to be made by those defenders. And there are no passing lanes really being generated besides point to left dot, point to right dot, point to left dot, point to right dot. That was the Red Wings power play. And then they're hoping for a scramble on the front of the net. Go back and watch every power play goal. Uh, there's no pretty ones. They're literally all rebound goals or shots from the point that make it make their way through. And that's because that seemed to be just in the mindset of that's what we're going to try and do. Once you saw the guys be willing to rotate out of positions, move around into different parts of the formation, read and react to what's happening when how the puck is shifting, you saw changes. You saw more movement of the puck into the slot. You saw quick passes that go cross slot. You got heads to turn. A lot of that was just good fundamental hockey and understanding kind of how to move and react. It's almost like, you know, you you play with a basketball analogy and you talk about guys who are great off ball movers. You know, for those of you that watch the Pistons in the, in the mid 2000s, Richard Hamilton away from the ball would get himself open. He knew how to space himself. He knew how to move. And he was a guy who could get himself into the right positions. Right now, you know, up until that Sunday game, you were watching a Red Wings power play that had three guys standing still with two of them being shooters and making it very easy for the defense to move. So I think Sunday, at least you saw a little bit more of that. I don't think it's it's necessarily like they're bogged down and playing on the power play. It's just not using their instincts, not using their read and reactions. They were simply trying to execute Philip Peronic shot or Anthony Mantha shot and get, get a rebound. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I think that that's a good description of what I'm kind of talking about. It felt more like your quintessential bump set spike in like beach volleyball or whatever than it did playing in flow. And, and and I thought that's what it looked like more on Sunday. They didn't score off of it, but you know, you know who I've liked at the top there is Kristen Juice. I think he's probably their best power play quote unquote quarterback at this point. He seems quite good at walking the line. He gets to where he needs to be. He is not trying to force shots through 14 different shins at one time. Um, I liked him and I think Dennis Chalowski, a lot of people in my comments on, on, uh, the story this morning were asking about Chalowski. Um, and I agree that Chalowski is, would be the ideal candidate here, but what's clear they, they sent him down to Grand Rapids today is that he's about ninth or 10th on the depth chart. And so barring him, like Kristen juice is probably the most analogous guy to what Chalowski would bring on the power play. And I thought he was a, a part of why that unit, um, looked to me better. He looked like the kind of guy who runs, that fluid power play that, that you and I are talking about. I mean, where's Troy Stetcher? Yeah. If you're talking about someone who could walk the blue line, yep. right? I think he's great. But then I also think uh, to a certain extent, and you know, maybe this is a little too radical for the, the Red Wings team right now. Why do you need to have a defenseman out there? If, if you are going to play low event five on five hockey, where you basically, it's a win for you. If nobody scores at five on five, yeah. why not go high variance on the power play when you have a man advantage Put Taro Hirose at the top. You shouldn't be shooting from the point. You should be having a guy who can best distribute the puck. If I'm looking for a guy who's able to find the slot player for a slot tip, a guy who can rotate into one of the dot positions, um, you know, potentially could sub out with Mantha or Philip Peronic or even Zadina once he's back and have those guys kind of ro- rotate around the top, he seems like a natural guy that could do that. Um, and so I, I think get creative. Go with a five-forward power play. Because uh, if you're going to play high variance hockey on the power play, you, that that's the way to do it is to get guys with that creativity out there. So 
I'd be voting for Stetcher or, or Hiroshi at this point. The problem with that, with Hiroshi, is that they view him as their most natural half-wall player for the power play. And and I agree with that. And so I think it would be kind of not to their comparative advantage, maybe, to use him up high when he is the guy who looks the best at kind of creating those pockets of space, um, especially low in the circle and, and buying time there. So um, that would be the hang-up with Hiroshi, I can tell you. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think Stetcher, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later in the show, you had a poll asking whether he had been the Red Wings' best defenseman thus far this season. Um, I think it's debatable. I think he definitely has a case. I mean, certainly by advanced stats, there's not an argument. He easily grades out as their best defenseman so far. And so then the the conversation becomes about the, uh, you know, the the context and the quality of competition, the usage, etc. But to your point, one of the things that has stood out about Trey Stetcher from basically the start of training camp is he is probably their best defenseman at keeping pucks in at the line. That's something the Red Wings need to be way better at on the power play. And so, yeah, if they continue to look for new bodies to sub in and out, and by the way, Robbie Fabry, Philip Zadina, um, Sam Gagne, John Merrill, who am I missing? Adam already won't play on the power play. All all those guys at some point in the next week will come back. That's going to be an infusion. I'm very curious to see how that shakes out. Um, I am curious if Taro Hirose ends up staying with this group because – I got to say at this point, like he, while I do think he's kind of a power play specialist, if that's the worst thing about this team and they're relying as much on it as they are to get offense by sacrificing a little bit of five on five offense to not sacrificing offense, five on five aggressiveness and chances to keep things, uh, you know, in control, you got to take your swing somewhere. Don't you like he's, he's the upside guy that, you know, maybe he is the guy that ends up sticking out of these three, uh, young players, in, including Smith and, and Rasmussen. Yeah, I mean, I, I would normally agree with you in that. I think as of last year, if you asked me what to think about Taro Hirose, he's, you were he's bullish. a power play specialist. I was very bullish. Uh, if you go back to our preseason predictions for last year, I said Taro Hirose, I think, would be fourth on the team in points, yep, if I remember that's correctly. That's right. Um, I was very bullish on it because he's got a high hockey IQ. But this season, it's it's translating to five on five, and he's not necessarily being carried by his line mates. He leads the wings in five on five Corsi four percentage of the guys on the roster right now. You know, the only guys ahead of him are, are Adam Ernie and Sam Gagne, who have played fewer games than him. And when he's on the ice at five on five, the only guy that uh, has a higher five on five expected goals for per sixty is Mantha. And so when he's on the ice, the wings are generating quality chances. Uh, so. I have a hard time saying he needs to go anywhere because not only is he contributing at five on five, albeit 10, 11 minutes a night, uh, he's doing it and being very creative on the power play. I think he was their best entry player. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, with him with the puck on his stick entering the zone, he made the best decisions. Uh, So I have to say he, he shouldn't go anywhere and should be a fixture on the top power play unit. But that's where it comes down. If you're going to put them on the top power play unit, who's coming off when everybody's healthy? That's where I think you should go to this hybrid of really it's one power play unit and you just rotate seven or eight guys in, um, you know, as you need to, because he's definitely a guy that belongs. I was kind of ready to write off uh, Hiroshi by, at the end of training camp this year. I, I He didn't stand out to me in the scrimmages and he was not one of the guys who was even into the taxi squad that told me he's not even really in the top 15 forwards that they were looking at. But um, I, I wrote this today. I think his upside gives him the best case to, to stay. And I, I would keep him over Nielsen. I would keep him honestly over Darren Helm. Apologies to the Darren Helm stands who uh, I do enjoy very much on Twitter. Um, you know, Helm took a bad penalty last night. And it what it really underlined is that the thing that made him uh, in his day stand out in, in spite of not having a ton of skill was the wheels and I think that foot race was to Anton Strahlman, who is not uh, a burner. So, um, yeah, I, I I think I would keep Hiroshi over both of those guys. Philpola has not been good this year, but I just I want people to be reasonable about this. Like they're not taking Philpola out of the lineup right now, even if you know I think there's a case for it. He was playing like 19 minutes the other night. It's not going to go from that swing. So I think if you're looking for a young guy to knock somebody off the bubble, Nielsen is the first name you're looking at and and then honestly it might be helm and i I didn't i helm hasn't stood out to me much this year to be honest with you so 
Um, but those are kind of neither here nor there conversations right now. They will make them in, in a couple days. Um, it would not surprise me. So, so Rasmussen and Smith got um, reassigned to the taxi squad today. I think that is a good sign for Hiroshi that he was not the one um, who was moved to that. I assume um, that happens. I mean, these have been paper moves that have been happening every day, basically. But um, since we know that Ernie and Fabry can come back and practice tomorrow, um, I don't expect that to, this one to be just a paper move. I expect that to be as they activate those two guys. So on the early test, that would seem to imply um, Hiroshi sticking in for right now. But we'll see how that develops. He probably has to maybe a higher, as we've talked about with these young players, higher burden of proof uh, fairly or unfairly than some of those older guys. I, you know, I do think he has, though, much more upside to bring that one element that the Red Wings so sorely lack on the power play. Um, and if that translates to five on five, great. But I guess my bigger point is even if it doesn't, the power play upside might be so important to the way this team is composed that it's worth doing anyway. And let's just go right into that. Cause this is the stat that I, someone asked me last night about the Red Wings at five on five and I looked at it and it stunned me. So the Red Wings, uh, right now are 12th in the NHL in five on five expected goals against. This is exactly what they want, by the way. This is the kind of team they want to be. They want to be a team that suppresses everything and doesn't give much up at five on five so that they uh, can stay in these games. And they're in the top half of the league at that and very close to the top third of the league at doing that. Um, but the compromise is their expected goals for is a disaster. It's dead last in the league, 1.7. That's not going to win you hardly any games Uh except for the fact that the Washington Capitals are virtually identical. They actually have a worse 5-on-5 defense and only marginally better, 1.76 expected goals, 4 per 60 uh, at 5-on-5 offense, and they are in first place in the NHL. So how can this be? Well, it's because the Capitals have the best power play in the NHL. It's producing at an unsustainably high rate of 44%. So look for the Capitals. Without Ovechkin. What's Without that? Ovechkin, Without Ovechkin, too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> unsustainably high rate. That's not going to keep up. Um, but I think it does illustrate that in order to, to have wins and losses success with this system, if you are, if you are playing this way, that's going to sacrifice some of that, uh, you know, aggressiveness that leads to chances on offense, your offense has to come from somewhere. And if it's not the power play, where is it? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're basically, you know, looking at this team being, the modern day version of the Minnesota Wild. Uh, you're looking because you know if, if you guys remember, for those watching hockey, probably 15 years ago, this was the classic Minnesota Wild team. They were outstanding defensively. They had a great goaltending tandem and uh, Manny Fernandez and Dwayne Rollison, uh, and they had a great power play. Uh, that you know the team that I'm thinking of is the 0708 Minnesota Wild. At five on five, their expected goals four per 60, 1.73, fourth worst all time in the, you know, since we have data, which goes back to. So the Red Wings are on pace to be worse than that. Bottom. And, and the Red Wings are 1.70. Yeah. So effectively the same, you know, 0.03. So bottom five here. all time bad five on five yeah. offense right now. Right. Wow. Bottom five all time five on five offense. That Minnesota team in 07 08 went 44 and 28, and they finished what? seventh in the league. Okay. How did they do it? Their power play was seventh, yeah. and their penalty kill was fourth. Yeah. Okay. They they were, but statistically they were not that indistinguishable from this Red Wings team. Uh, their expected goals for per sixty was one point seven three. Expected goals against one point nine one, so a little bit better. Um, but it just you know the distinguishable part is the special teams. You know another team that crossed my mind was uh, the Anaheim Ducks. They were another team when you know when they had Scott Niedermeyer and and, and Chris Pronger and. And, you know, they still had J.S. Jagir in goal. And then they went to, uh, you know, a, a couple of other guys after that. Um, Jonas Hiller. Um, they were very similar. The 0708 Ducks were 1.87, 5 and 5 expected goals for, 1.98 expected goals against. They finished fourth in the league. Um, and that team did it with, again, a really strong penalty kill. And so, you know, you have to find a way, if you're Detroit, to drag yourself up and get some goals somewhere. And you cannot come into a scenario where you are 26th on the power play and 30th on the PK. You're going to get absolutely rocked. 
Uh, and that's really the difference. You know, I, the two teams I just referenced were good teams, very good teams that had a lot of great players. You know, I just said Scott Niedermeyer, Chris Pronger, Timo Solani, Ryan Getzloff, Corey Perry. That's 07 08 uh, Ducks. But maybe a team that's maybe a better comparison is like the 2012 2013 Blue Jackets, where they had a couple guys that could take you places. You know, Rick, uh, you know, they had a couple of guys that could get you going. You know, Rick Nash was a guy who could do that. But their splits were very similar to the Wings 1.74 expected goals, four per 60, 2.04 against. That team finished 17th in the league. They even had a crummy power play. They were 28th in the league on power play, about 12.6%. But they did it by, again, having a strong penalty kill that was top 10 in the league. And so you've got to find a way to tilt at least one of those to drag you into the middle half of the league. And then if you tilt both of those into top 10 scenarios, then you can potentially still be a good hockey team. But you just have to solve special teams. This is what we talked about at the beginning of the year. Is when we, when we talked about if you want to know practically how can the Red Wings accomplish this step forward, we we wanted two phases of the game that you were solid to good in. I think we defined might have been top twenty in the league, or I don't know if we said top twenty or top half. But we and those criteria were five on five offense, five on five defense, power play, penalty kill. Right now, the Red Wings have resoundingly checked that box in one area. But the reason we said two is because all those teams that you mentioned had at least two of these areas, right? You, you were either a uh, abysmal team at five on five, but you were great on both special teams, or you were a great team at five on five in both directions, and you were bad at special teams, or you were good at suppressing chances overall. Like like your, your five on five expected goals against was great, but so was your penalty kill. So you had a chance to win games two to one or whatever on a given night. I mean, the Red Wings are averaging two goals a game. So if you want to win, you got to win two to one or two to zero. They gave up zero expected goal or uh, zero goals, like actual goals at five on five in two of their last four losses and one in another of their last four losses. That's one total goal across three games at five on five. They gave up. They lost all of them. Well, that tells you something. It tells you that they were either uh, getting scored on, on the penalty kill which is uh, what happened. It tells you they were not scoring on the power play, which is what happened. Uh, and they were marginally scoring at five on five, just not enough. And so this is what this is what it all is. You need to find one other area of your game that can rise to this level. And then you'll be just mediocre. You won't be good, but you'll just be mediocre. And frankly, that's kind of what we said a success would be for this year. Yeah, I mean, mediocre is that 2012-2013 Columbus team. Like that's that is what you could do, and that's what you could conceivably accomplish, you know, with this uh, with this team, I think. You know, if you look at that 2012-2013 Columbus team, the leading scorer on that team is Vinny Prospel, followed by Mark Letestu, followed by Fedor Tutin, all right? that That's the talent on that roster. I mean, yes, they had a very young Cam Atkinson. They had a young Artem Anismov. You know, they had a younger Brandon Dubinsky. Uh, they had, you know, some guys there, but that that was a team that was actually led by guys that were not all that talented. And Detroit's got more talent than that. Um, and so it's, can you get the goaltending? Can you get the special team, at least one of the two special teams to work? And that'll drag you into mediocre. It's because like I said, um, a couple episodes back, th- this kind of style is a nightmare to go up against. You know, you don't want to be in this muck and grind type of hockey. I can tell you, you know, Florida doesn't want to play a game where they only generate 0.93 expected goals for and somehow score three goals and win the game. They don't want to be in that scenario where you have to do that. Um, I mean, that was a perfect game, that Saturday game. Detroit held Florida to 0.93 expected goals at, at five on five, only took three penalties and somehow lost the game. You just can't lose those. And so that's where you've got to find another aspect of your game besides five-on-five defense to excel, um, and that whether that's going to be elite goaltending, uh, that's going to be your penalty kill, or that's going to be your power play, something's got to work itself out here for Detroit. Okay, so that answers the first part of my question, which is, is it possible to win uh, without five-on-five offense? It sounds like we think the answer is sometimes, but you got to have either a great power play or a great penalty kill or both to do it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all these teams were at least, you know, top 10 penalty kill. Um, and then two of them, you know, were pretty solid on the power play. So these defensive teams, it makes sense that they would generally 
skew toward being better than on, on the penalty kill than the power play, but um, at, at least you got to then do that. The Red Wings are the 30th penalty kill in the league right now. They're not holding up that end of the deal. So my follow-up is if they need to get one more area of their game up to this top half of the league, top 20, whatever level, which one is the most likely? And because I think the power play is the one that has drawn the most ire so far, is there any reason to believe that the power play could have some meaningful regression? Or is it something that, uh, you know, not that you're not going to try to make it better, but but just don't put your hopes on it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're going to finish at 11.8%. I do think you are going to get some luckier bounces. And again, it's, it's important to reiterate, they are literally missing the entirety of power play two uh, that normally plays here, right? So you're getting a lot of minutes recently from guys who don't normally play play on the power play. That's not to say they can't do it, but you know, that that's the situation we're talking about. And to me, I think it's solvable. I mean, you look at a team like Chicago, Chicago is a bad hockey team. Chicago is a team we thought was very bad. They're seventh in the league in power play goals. Uh, you know, Calgary, not that good of a hockey team, sixth in the league in power play goals. So, you know, th- these teams have found a way to do it. Buffalo is third in the league in power play goals. Like you can do this. You just have to figure out the scheme, the system, and coaching uh, is where I think that, that kind of comes in. But again, if you're going to be a betting person, the two areas that I think uh, fix themselves fastest is one, I think goaltending fixes itself. Right now, you know, if you go look at Red Wings goalie statistics, they're not great. They're, they actually have been subpar relative to last year. Um, so you're actually getting better defense, but now worse goaltending as a result of that, which I think will shore itself up uh, as you move forward. But really, in reality, they have to figure out the penalty kill as well. I think that's the area that you're most likely to solve. And I don't think you're going to see them be at 64%. I mean, that's that's historically awful. I don't think people are going to be real happy, uh, honestly, even if that is the way that the Red Wings end up doing this, because uh, 2-1 wins still aren't that fun to watch. But I think people would take 2-1 wins. And, and really, I think what they really crave is just not losing streaks like this based on based on the feedback that I, I I think people just are really tired of every night not coming out of this on the right end and I can assure you the players and coaches feel that way strongest of all but um it, it'll be interesting I mean I I agree with what you said I think the penalty kill is the most likely one they can fix um I think the power play would be the one that uh would be the most fun for them to fix <laughs> the power play would be fun because then at that point you get some goals to celebrate yeah. right yeah absolutely all right. Well, I think that's a good discussion. So broadly then, let's just to, to put a bow on it, um, is that the is that the path forward here? Is is it don't make too many changes at five on five and and just really focus on getting the special teams in order? Or is there a change or two you'd like to see um, at five on five that maybe you then have to, to solve around? You know, I think right now you have to be satisfied with the way five on five has gone. Um, there have really been three games. Even with that the I offense, think, even with the low offense. Yeah, 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 even with the offense, because again, I think if you're Detroit, if you open this up, you don't have talent line after line to stay with most of the teams in your division. You might be able to do it against Chicago, uh, but that's really you know the only team that you could consider doing it. But of course, the Chicago game uh, where they got absolutely trounced was their worst game of the season. So. Uh, from a from a five and five defense standpoint, but I think right now you have to take your victories, which is you've been able to exert your strategy on other teams. You know, Detroit uh, has only had three games where they have allowed more than one point seven expected goals against at five on five. Three games. It's both Carolina games and it's the Chicago game. Otherwise, they've done an outstanding job. Continue to play good defense. You know. Try and, uh, you know, just cross your fingers and hope your goalies figure it out. Hopefully Jonathan Bernier is, you know, back soon and Thomas Grice is able to solve his game uh, and you can get the goaltending necessary. And then from there, go all out on getting as high of an offensive output as you can from your power play. Yes, I think you should try five forwards. Yes, I think you should be very, very aggressive in trying to extract offense from that if you want to have any chance at, being a successful hockey team. 
All right, that's good. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, let's go to the mailbag. Uh, did you see any of the questions? Or do you want me to just rattle some off at you? Yeah, I mean, uh, rattle away here. I always do. Uh, Borjo says, I made a bet with a friend. Well, he says mate. I guess he's in Australia. Uh, that the Red Wings would finish higher than the Kings this season. Loser buys dinner. What chance do I have of winning that bet? And where should I take him for dinner? Now, granted, uh, yeah, he is in Sydney. So I imagine you don't know any Sydney restaurants. But if you want to flex some from Sydney tourism knowledge right now, I will respect the hell out of you. Well, so the only, only, it's been too long. I think it's been eight years since I've been to Sydney. So unfortunately, I, I cannot lay restaurant recommendations down. Uh, it has probably too much has, has changed since then. But unfortunately, I do think you are going to lose this one uh, simply by virtue of the, the West Division is terrible. Um, the, you know, the Kings are going to get more free points. Uh, and, and, you know, the Kings still have a little bit better high-end talent with, you know, Andre Kopitar. Uh, still leading the way, and they've got some good young guys, uh, Velarde and uh, and such. So I think the Kings are going to ultimately squeak out here if your bet was on points percentage. But uh, fortunately, I can tell you lots about the bars in Sydney, but I don't think I could tell you a whole lot about the restaurants. I've never left the continent. Is that weird? That's a little weird. I'd like to. It's not like for like lack of like interest. I just it's never happened. I my girlfriend really wants to go to uh, France. We'll probably do that at some point, but. I don't know. I think Australia would be pretty high on my post list. Post-COVID times, right? What's that? Yeah, post-COVID. Post-COVID. Yeah. Yep. Um, but here's here's my general advice for paying out this bet. Number one, determine what your goal of paying it out is. Do you want to make them feel really like happy or whatever? Or do you just want to kind of have your little petty revenge while you do it? If you want to make them happy, then just go to like a real nice place or, or literally just let them pick. But the other options are you just take them to your favorite restaurant so that no matter what happens, you're getting uh, your favorite meal out of it. Or number two, treat it like the like Homer Simpson in hell thing where you take them somewhere like a buffet, uh, like a Golden Corral or whatever the equivalent in Australia is, and just basically make them like force feed, keep eating so that they regret ever making you take them to dinner. That would be the other option. That's not a bad way to be. Not one bit. Okay, let's go on to the next question. Um... We got a question from Joe about wanting you to do an episode explaining analytics more in depth. I think we've done that. Um, I'm not going to ask you to do that right now because we're toward the end of the show here. But um, Joe, I think we did that on an episode somewhat early on. I can look for it for you. Uh, or otherwise, Charlie O'Connor wrote an awesome explainer for like hockey advanced stats a while back that I would highly recommend. Uh, and I would recommend it to anybody out there who... Um, is interested. Uh, Eric Jennings asked a really good tag on question to our conversation today. And he says, how worried are you that playing low event, low, po- low possession systems could stunt the development of the Red Wings, younger players who need to develop puck possession skills at the NHL level. 
And is that skill development more important than losing games two to one or three to one instead of four to one or four to two right now? I think that train has sailed. I think that train sailed in junior hockey for a lot of these guys. Um, you know, I like to reference this, this piece a lot because it really, it, you know, it speaks to me. Go read the Igor Larionov Player Tribune article where they ask Igor Larionov about some of his coaching philosophies. They ask him about the Soviet Red Army. Um, and, and one of the quotes he talks about in there is a lot of these coaches are guys who just don't know how to think creatively. And he's re- he's kind of referencing uh, the junior coaches uh, more so than anybody else. But he's talking about it's it's all about safe hockey. It's all about, you know, get pucks in deep, avoid having to to take risk. Uh, he goes, if you if you coach that way all across the world, we'd be. Uh, we'd have fewer and fewer Pavel Datsuks. Um, I think that skill and really kind of diversity uh, and creativity gets coached out of these guys at a younger age that by the time they hit the NHL, they're only making it if they're the guys that can, you know, make safe plays and consistent uh, and consistently avoid seeing the puck in the back of their net, aside from the truly elite players. The truly elite guys are the ones that rise above it. Everybody else, I think, gets dragged back down as a virtue or it's kind of a nature of how these guys get coached growing up. I agree. And I, I do think skill development doesn't happen too much in terms of like puck skills at this level. Like that's pretty late in the game for it. Guys can get marginally better, but it's it's probably not. You're probably not going to see a major puck skills thing there. What I will say is, is there a problem solving component to this that that does have credence to Eric's question? Because there is a I think there is a difference in like being able to quickly problem solve at, say, entering the offensive zone at the blue line and how you want to do that as opposed to chipping it off the wall and go get it, which, you know, oftentimes you'd be coached to do versus, you know, problem solve. Okay. Can I, can I stop and hit a trailer? Can I, you know, just make a little off the boards pass? Can I go through this guy? Whatever. Like, is there a problem solving component to this that does hold up to Eric's point? Yeah. I mean, I I think that's certainly there. Um, You know, I will, hang my hat on this one that I think this happened to Thomas Yurko. Yeah. Um, he was an extraordinarily talented player. I mean, you can go watch all of his YouTube videos. The guy was, uh, you know, heralded to be, uh, kind of a next big thing for Detroit. He was a big body for it. I think if I'm remembering right, he's like six two, two ten. hands were just incredible. I mean, he honestly body wise was very similar to Andre Sveshnikov. Um, but when he got to Detroit, it was a lot of, you know, hey, you can't turn back with the puck at the blue line if you don't have possession. You need to keep the game going in a north-south fashion. Or, hey, don't try that dangle or move because uh, you're not going to have success with that at the NHL level. I mean, even if you go back to to Pavel Datsuk's kind of coaching, uh, you know, he did get he did have to get handled a little bit by Scotty Bowman, who would basically tell him, hey, you beat the guy once already. Don't you don't need to beat him a second time. Uh, you know, with another move. Uh, so I do think that does happen, but I don't think it's necessarily gone forever. Um, you know, but I think examples of it, if you're looking for it, is just watch Matias Brome play with the puck. Yeah. Uh, he's a guy who hasn't been under a lot of North American coaching. And he's a guy that, uh, you know, is more willing to turn back and turn his back to the the offensive net. He's a guy willing to send the puck back to maintain possession um, hopefully that doesn't get coached out of him, but I don't think it's I don't think it's significantly detrimental for the good guys. The other thing that I want to clarify, and I think this can get lost, is that when we talk about low event hockey, there's the coaches don't say don't ever try to dangle somebody. They don't ever say don't don't use your puck skills, don't try to score goals, don't try to set up plays. What what it really is about is it's it's a emphasis on don't take unnecessary risks. And sometimes those skill plays at the blue line can be unnecessary risks, but it it it's hockey's different than other sports because the coaches aren't calling these plays in real time as they happen. It's not football and you're not you're not passing to the first down yard line on third down. It's more like players have to kind of remember these little heuristics and maybe they go, Oh shit, I'm supposed to manage the risk. Let me just dump this in, right? So they're, the Red Wings still want – they want to score five goals in a game, six goals in a game if they can. They just don't want to force plays in in search of it when it's when they're pretty low percentage shots to take. And that might be different than than how you'd see someone like Larianov offer to coach it. Um, 
or you know you know how to name your european coach whatever but i'd also say this exists in europe too and and when you have like a team like even like a Ferlunda that wins and and they don't always win by scoring six goals or or by uh the flashiest dangles in the world they're still trying to develop pros and and be smart about this stuff so what i think is it when we talk about like low event hockey what we're really saying is they're not going to take a lot of risks which minimizes events of both positive and negative effect. And that would include turnovers. That would include scoring chances. Um, and on the net, the Red Wings seem to think that makes them better. Um, but I, I, I don't think the Red Wings don't want to score five goals if they can score five goals. Yeah. I think low event hockey should, should, uh, maybe be rephrased as kind of this almost safer style of hockey, yeah. because it's worth noting the Red Wings won a Stanley cup being the lowest event team in, in hockey, right. In 07, 08, and then they went to the finals in 08-09, still being relatively low event. I mean, Mike Babcock's teams were traditionally bottom three teams in pace of play when you're looking at total number of events. So you can win Stanley Cups very easily like that. Um, it's all about kind of risk mitigation. And, and again, we know the NHL is about it is a league that's entirely bent on we should, you know, don't take risks, don't take unnecessary risk. And so I don't think that's going to be harmful in the long run. I tend to think not either, but I, you know, I, I respect where Eric's coming from. Like, I think he's thinking about this long term, and I, I think it's definitely a fair perspective. Multiple questions here from uh, both Lars and Don Danger. Should the Red Wings give Sam Bennett a look? Uh, I don't know if you saw, but it, it certainly seems like Sam Bennett maybe wants out in Calgary. Yeah, so I saw that. Um, Sam Bennett is your run-of-the-mill third-line center, I think, at this point. Um, I don't think he offers you anything extra. Um, unless you think you can rehabilitate um, him and, and kind of at this point in his career, I I don't see it. Um, I don't see it as being worthwhile. I think you'll see a Calgary team that'll probably ask for more than they should get, given that he's still 24 years old. Um, and I don't think he, you know, Detroit's necessarily the team that could rehabilitate uh, him right now. So if I'm the wings, I'm not. Uh, I'm not really pat- taking a flyer out on him at all. And I'll uh, I'll just to make sure I've got the credit right. I believe it was Elliot Freeman who reported this uh, from Darren Ferris, who was Bennett's agent, also Philip Sedina's agent. Um, that that Ferris wants a, a quote change of scenery, uh, and Elliot of course works for Sportsnet, so that's what we're referencing here. Um, I, you know, I don't mind the Sam Bennett idea. Like he's a former high pick, and sometimes those guys do later on hit at some other point in their career with a fresh start. Uh, it all kind of depends on the price. Like, would you give up a third round pick for Sam Bennett? No. Interesting. Okay, so that, that's a, probably about what I would be comfortable with if I was a GM in this situation. But um, you know, Bennett's got a, he's he's kind of that that guy who can be mystifying because I think he's. A, he's done his best work in the playoffs. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. I mean, he really has not done a whole lot uh, in the regular season. Um, you know, you look at Dom's model and Dom has him as a kind of 0. 0.1 uh, wins yeah, added that's not good. this this year. That's like a fourth so line player. That, that's exactly it, right? I mean, it's literally a fourth line player. That's where he's got him projected and you're paying him two and a half million dollars this year. Um, and, you know, so if we look at the value of, of a third round pick, I mean, a third round pick is worth 0.7 wins over the course of, so seven uh, times as you know, the seven years. So basically, right. So so I don't know that I would do it. I mean, really where it starts to become, you know, roughly equivalent values down to your, you know, your fifth, sixth and seventh round picks, which is where you could take a flyer. Calgary's so not gonna that's why that. I think. Right. Right. And so Calgary's not going to make that deal. So I don't see a deal here happening for. Uh, for Detroit, uh, at least one that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Would you flip a prospect who doesn't look like they're working out in Detroit, a la Chalowski, Svechnikov, something like that? Yeah, you absolutely could make that deal if, if that's what Calgary's interested. To me, I think Calgary's probably uh, a little further ahead in where they perceive their team, obviously being in the playoffs last year, such that they, in my opinion, would, I, would want a piece that would be able to slot in for them now. I don't know that necessarily Chalowski or Smith could do that, mm-hmm. um, but it would be you know equivalent age-wise. I mean, Chalowski's a couple years younger than uh, Sam Bennett. You know, Smith's a couple years younger than him as well. So, I mean, either would work in that situation. But I think if you're Detroit, you might come up on the raw end of the deal there. 
That's fair. Uh, the thing that catches my eye w- with Bennett is the playoff production. I mean, he was a, a point per game player in five games in 2018-19. He was a point eight points per game player in 10 games uh, in the playoffs last year. Now he's doing that on a 15.5% shooting percentage, uh, which is substantially higher, 150% higher than what it is in the regular season. And so I'm inclined to say that maybe there's some PDO uh, correction coming for him in the playoffs, but we also tend to know that some guys, for whatever reason, do better in the playoffs than the regular season. Now, the flip side of that is the Red Wings aren't going to be in the playoffs anytime soon, and so what do they need a playoff player for? But uh, maybe they will someday. I, I I think it's a fine idea, but I'm generally in agreement with Prashant that you just don't want to probably pay too much here. Like I don't think you're you can treat this like you're getting like a top nine player or certainly I think Sam Bennett was like a top ten pick. He was fourth overall pick in twenty fourteen. Yeah. Like you're you're not gonna pay a price of even a guy who was a first round pick at this point for for what it's turned into. But uh I don't mind the idea. I agree. All right, what else do we got here? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about this uh, earlier on the show. Joe Falzon, have Hiroshi, Rasmussen, and Smith done enough to stay in the lineup over F- Nielsen or Philpola when Fabry, Zadina, and Gagne come back? At le- he says at least two of them should stay and which D should sit for Merrill. He says probably should be Danny to Kaiser, much as I love him, but it will probably be Juice. Where are you at on some of these discussions? This is going to become clear-ish in the next few days, maybe even before our next episode. So I almost hate to um, have something like this with a short shelf life on it, but, uh, let's go, let's take a run at it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think from a forward standpoint, it's like what we talked about earlier. I think Hiroshi deserves the ability to stay in. Obviously Rasmussen and Smith have, uh, you know, been, uh, reassigned right down to Grand Rapids. So, uh, I think that's probably that as far as that happens, I think Rasmussen probably deserved to stay. I thought he actually looked, you know, quite good, but we, we've kind of talked about how Phil Pelot is unlikely to be coming out of the lineup. You know, you could probably pull Franz Nielsen to stay in for Hiroshi, but that's really it. Um, and as far as Merrill, I do think it is going to be Juice. Um, you know, they're using Juice in effectively the same role that they were using Merrill in, um, including on power play too. So uh, I, I do think he ends up sitting. I don't think they sit to Kaiser, uh, even though he has not really looked himself and uh, you know, really the only other guy that I think could end up sitting would be Mark Stahl, but uh, uh, I just don't see that happening either. So uh, to me, I think it's going to be pretty straightforward as uh, as Joe kind of described it. Stahl might be the most interesting case study of eye test versus what numbers will tell you that I've ever seen. Because coming in, he was uh, really a, a low, lowly regarded player by uh, most analytics and, you know, fair, like fairly, it seemed like. And so he came in and the eye test basically confirmed that. And I don't think he's looked very good this year, but then you go and you look at uh, what his advanced numbers are. And all of a sudden in Detroit, now they're like, they're good. I think he's close to 50% expected goals for percentage. He is. He is. He is over. He's over 50, 50.3 expected goals for percentage. Which shocks me because coming in, analytics crowd hated Mark Stahl. And so I came in and I watched him with the on ice. And I said, actually, yeah, that lines up. And then now the advanced stats don't hate Mark Stahl. They say he's him and Stetcher. And maybe this is Stetcher carrying him. I guess that's probably the contention that you would make. But um, that pairing has been Detroit's most effective D pairing. Yeah. I mean, you know me too well. You know exactly what I'm going to say. Uh You know, some people were, were annoyed at me when I posted a chart of Brett Lebda next to uh, Philip Peronic and, and, and made a comment that, well, I didn't really even make a comment. It's more, I'm just trying to get people to think there, but, uh, one of the, the rebuttals was, well, Philip Peronic has a much harder role. That's true, but he's not playing with Mark Stahl. So imagine how much better Troy Stetcher's numbers could even be without playing next to Mark Stahl. I mean, the, the, the eye test absolutely lines up here. You look at back to the Dallas game where the wings get blown out seven, three Mark Stahl literally looks up as a puck is coming around the boards and just whiffs on the puck. And that leads to a two on one that ultimately resulted. I think that's the play where Anthony Mantha goes crashing into to Bernier and he gets hurt in that play was that two on one where Mantha's trying to bust his, you know, butt to get back. I mean, it, it lines up 100%. So I, I really do think it is Troy Stetcher dragging that pairing up uh, in addition to kind of having a little bit cushier usage 
Um, although I think when you're the Detroit pairings, I haven't necessarily seen aggressive line matching. Uh, I don't think uh, Blashill is dropping Philip Peronic and Patrick Nemeth as a shutdown pair. No, I agree. In that sense. Yeah. So I, I think the quality of competition is relatively consistent across those guys. It's just overall usage. Like Peronic's still playing like six yeah. more minutes a night than those guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's absolutely playing more, but uh, I, I just think it's, it's fascinating – um, how well Stetcher has done with this, uh, you know, with Mark Stahl kind of having his his struggles. And ultimately, in a 10-game sample, it makes Mark Stahl look pretty good. So who's the guy you're taking out for Merrill? Stahl or Juice? I think it's Juice. Okay. You, I mean, you think. if you ask me who I want to take no, no, out is Stahl. You're saying you think it's uh, Juice. Yeah, I think Juice comes out. You might be right. I kind of think Juice has earned his way in. I think he's been one of their top three defensemen for, for what I've seen since he's been in the lineup. I agree with Joe here. I, I think it's I think the Kaiser should be the odd man out right now and not forever. Like, I don't think you're saying Danny DeKaiser comes out and doesn't come back in. But like if, if we're saying that the reason that he hasn't looked himself is that he's coming off back surgery, what's wrong with giving him a game or two off a week to to really just get back into the flow? Like. Because I agree that the Kaiser doesn't look himself, and I don't think I, I don't think that's limited to like skating or whatever. Like I think he's maybe rushed a few decisions with the puck, trying to clear the zone. Like those are the things that have stood out more to me. Because I expected him to look a little slow. It, I just think the overall picture. I think of the Kaiser as a relatively poised, smart defenseman, um, and not just in terms of someone who can shut guys down, but in terms of helping to break the puck out. And that's the thing that I've been missing watching him this year in his game and so i agree with joe here i think the kaiser maybe should be the odd man out um you might be right that it's juice i don't think it'll be stall so i i think it i think it's likely to be the kaiser or juice and my guess is you're probably right about juice but i think i i think it should be the kaiser um, yeah i wouldn't agar- i wouldn't argue against that either i think the kaiser makes a lot of sense too um Nielsen would be the guy I would take out for Hiroshi. I, I, again, I just don't think Fulpel is coming out, but I think Nielsen hasn't brought a ton and or anything, you know, really. He's got a couple assists, but, you know, it's it's just not been – it's not there. Like, it's it's not the guy that, that this was even two years ago where you could still see he was setting up plays. And, you know, I, I've seen some turnovers in the D zone that have been costly. And um, that's who I would take out for Hiroshi. You know, again, I don't, I don't know that Hiroshi sticks long-term here, but – I think he's earned it. I think Rasmussen also had a case, and I think Smith is the one who had the best game last night of those three personally. So um, I think all of them have cases. I think obviously now we know Hiroshi is the most likely because he was the one that didn't get sent to the taxi squad today. Um, but nevertheless, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. But yeah, I, I would take uh, Nielsen out for Hiroshi. And I actually think that that's got a decent chance of happening. If they're not sending Hiroshi down, they're not going to let him sit. They would, they would send him to GR. So um, if he's not getting sent down or to the taxi squad... To me, that would kind of indicate he's got a good shot at staying in the lineup. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up today? I think that's it. I think we hit on lots of fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that sounds good. And we'll be back at you guys uh, later on this week. The Red Wings play at Tampa Wednesday night. So uh, gird your loins. Yeah.